Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Borders, whatever else their intentions, hold us to more than just geography or nationhood. The idea of threat, the idea of safety, and the limitless bounds of fear. This program features the work of 2014 writer Susan V. Myers. Curator Felicia Gonzalez sat down with her in the studio. Can you talk a little bit about times when you've been brave in your writing? I have been interested in taking on themes that push my own thinking a little bit further. So, for instance, in 2007 to 2008, I lived in a small community in rural Mexico that happened to be located in the state, uh, Michoacan, where the drug war was beginning. And it's also a state that historically has had a large degree of outbound, usually undocumented migration to the United States. And having completed the research portion of that project, I'm now trying to take on my own sets of identity aspects with respect to being an outsider and wanting to say something about a context that is high stakes, that has implications for the country of which uh, I am a citizen, but the process of taking all of that on causes me to realistically need to question my own sets of assumptions almost at every turn. What role do you see identity playing in your work as a writer? Certainly one of the themes that I'm most interested in working on actually has to do with not just identity but connection, particularly through different types of communication, whether it's explicit, such as language, or more implicit in terms of different cultural behaviors. And in order for communication to occur, there has to be a type of anchored aspect in people's identities. And now I'm trying to take on different, newer facets of my own identity as someone who's fully adult, who is clear about probably different aspects of identity in my home context, but still could stand to problematize the aspects of self that extend outward towards the world. Now we'll hear a selection from Susan's live reading. Visits to the Border Before anything else, there was an idea. In 1851, a group of surveyors, half Mexican and half American, set out to map the shape of a division between their two nations. It was, more than anything, an intellectual exercise. Treaties had been signed. Decisions had been made. It was time, finally, to formalize the space where one sovereignty ended and another one began. Topography was the easy part. The Rio Grande and the Colorado River those generous, specific outlines of division. Gifts from nature when first one country and the next decided, finally, the need for definition. More challenging, though, were those no-man's lands, New Mexico and Chihuahua, Arizona and Sonora, renegade states within both nations that refused definition, canyon lands and the Tarahumari, snakes and spines and lands so dry the memory of water barely existed. On the U.S. side, they had sent a man of letters to do it, John Russell Bartlett. He'd been easy to convince. Already, he was so charmed by it all, native men living in a wild, rough country. So he'd wanted to see how the rugged West worked, the noble savage and the pioneering drive. 
He had a kind of armchair reading connection to it all. But he wanted to study, to know. Because knowing, he understood, should translate into ownership. In Spanish, the word to meet, a person or a place, means to know them. So Bartlett had come to see the border, to know it, and to lay claim to it for his country. But the border was rough territory, desert mounted upon desert, cacti and gila monsters, ocotillo and grit and spine. What the whole commission left behind, a few stray markers, was almost as inconsequential as the maps they had sent back to each government. More estimation than declaration. When I first encountered that border, it was by then 100 years old. I was 10. My parents had taken me to San Diego and then to Tijuana. We had driven the long way down from Seattle, where we lived buttressed up against another, much less visceral border. Until then, I had never seen anything like Tijuana, a harried region all its own. I remembered crossing on foot. I remember small gold chains, dainty and lovely, in shop windows. The merchants called, how much do you offer? Tell me, what do you want? Aggressive and loud. That's what I had noticed. I was intrigued, and I wanted to leave. I wanted to buy trinkets, but the men in the shop scared me. I wanted to turn my face away from the children, all my own age, selling chiclets at the border crossing. They wore muted acrylic sweaters, and the concentration in their gazes worried me. I had grown up safe without thinking about safety. Before Tijuana, nothing had felt dangerous. But there it was, the world rousing itself, showing me how varied it could be acrylic sweaters on a hot day, and the focus of those eyes, expressionless but intent, that bleak insistence, comprame, comprame, buy something, buy anything. Years earlier, my parents had fallen ill in Guadalajara. They didn't want to take any risks. So we had dinner at an Americanized restaurant called Senior Frogs. <laughs> we ate beef tacos and avoided the side of carefully washed greens. On our way back across the border, as we stood in a stagnant line of tourists, a boy approached me with his box of chiclets. I shook my head. He stood there. There were holes at the cuffs of his sweater. I felt an ache that was only partly like fear. The day was warm. Comprame, he insisted. I didn't, though I remember him still. He was just my height. The border itself was first erected in 1894. This second excursion of men took Bartlett's notes and traveled the 2,000 miles of frontier to set down large stone monuments, 276 in total. Finally, the border had become physical, a series of posts indicating the location of the international line. In this state, it was still nothing that could be protected or enforced. It was symbolic, a reminder of the divisions between us. Men standing in the desert took commemorative photographs, still, as though to mark the presence of a thing could be sufficient. And no one had expected it, but during the ensuing months and years, people began defacing those monuments, tearing them down, pulling chunks of concrete from their angled sides, chipping away at the foundations of one nation or the other. So the men had had to come back and put fences around those stately markers to protect them, a border for the border. Like Bartlett before them, they learned that the creation of division was more rigorous than any of them had expected.
It was 20 years before I went back to Mexico. By then, I was like Bartlett, an academic. And I had come to Mexico that time on my own, a researcher living in a small town halfway down the nation's western seaboard. Borders felt different on that side. Not a measure of distance, but a reminder of the closeness of both of us. In Michoacan, people talked about going north as though it were a ticket you could buy. Despite NAFTA, despite the failing farms and empty bank ledgers and the real need for employment, none of the people in that town could get a visa. For the application, they would have needed education and property, which of course they did not have. Borders, whatever else their intentions, hold us to more than just geography or nationhood. The idea of threat, the idea of safety, and the limitless bounds of fear. I love my home, one woman there told me. I love it. And that, she says, is why she will never leave, no matter how bad it gets. They'd ruin our house. She nodded to the neighboring homes around us, as though the community would wrong her if their family left for a period of time. It was fearful, that idea of passing time away from home, away from Mexico, terrifying the idea that somehow home would not be waiting for them when they got back. In eastern San Diego, 15 miles from the sea, the Border Patrol inhabits a rather plain-looking office building composed of beige paneling and a simple A-frame roof. From here, it is possible to request a free guided tour of the border. I enter a plain white van, unmarked and driven by a man in his mid-twenties. He has ambitions of becoming a law officer. He is friendly and talkative. As we drive, the van filled with a group of students and teachers, he tells us stories of the various threats to the border and how officers like him work to keep us safe. About $50 million spent to fill a canyon full of dirt, about a 13-year-old boy sitting with binoculars in his San Diego home phoning the border patrol to give them leads. And he tells us about Mexican mothers tossing their babies over the tops of fences to waiting hands on the U.S. side. He tells us about people's homes along the border, controlled by Mexican cartels. We nod and listen and make no comment. When we arrive at the border, we can see it. There are actually two fences, and we drive slowly through the rocky desert land between them. One fence is so much more than a monument. It's tall and silvered and topped with barbed wire where it adjoins the United States. The fence on the Mexican side, though, looks different, quieter. It is made, our driver explains, out of recycled landing pads from the Vietnam War. They look to me like huge blocks of tough black leather, and there are holes cut into the sides. You've got to be able to see them, our driver explains. Then, in another few minutes, he nods. Look, there they are, staging. And out the window of that unmarked van, I can see what he means a small group of men and boys hovering by the black landing strip wall. They grin as we pass. They do not look particularly scared. It's a game of chess, cat and mouse, because they know, even our driver admits this, that if they cross often enough, they will get in. He shakes his head. And what I don't understand, he says, is why they just don't do it the right way. There's a right way, you know? And then we're passing the long line of cars stopped at the border with the regulation papers and passports. That same crossing where, 20 years earlier, 
I had looked a boy in my, a my age in the eye and refused to buy the box of gum he was selling. Why can't they just do it right? He asks again, and I nod, though it's not out of sympathy or agreement. What could I try to explain to him? About political revolutions and property rights? About what it takes to get a visa? About the fact that people who need it most will never get the chance? None of this information, I worry, would make much of a difference. He's already settled on his way of seeing the world. Because that, after all, is what borders do. They give shape to things, a kind of architecture for the imagination. I don't know, I hear myself say out loud, shaking my head again, astounded, though I suppose I really shouldn't be, by the complexity of it all, the danger and the disappointment. Like John Bartlett, towing the line all those decades ago, trying to learn, trying to know, naming, measuring, defining, defending, as though any of it were ever possible. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2014 curator of this program is Felicia Gonzalez. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Mo Proventure. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Proventure, and Steve DeTori. Narrator is Jin Hammond. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by two trios with Victor Noriega, Jeff Johnson, and Greg Campbell, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in the series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>